I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we explore God's good news for imperfect people. We're nearing the end of season three, which is our walk through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Today we're on chapter 11, and then we'll have two episodes on chapter 12 to finish it off. So what's next, you might be wondering. I can bet you're just salivating in anticipation for what the topic for season four will be. Well, again, I'd like for us to explore a portion of the Bible that's often ignored by Christians, and that is the section of the Old Testament that is called the Minor Prophets. 12 books from Hosea through Malachi. Now, pastors always trot out the the prophet Malachi during stewardship season because Malachi 3.10 is a favorite for that. Social justice warriors love Micah 6.8. That's a common battle cry for justice issues. And Sunday school teachers love the book of Jonah, great flannel graft images of whales and poor Jonah being cast into the ocean. But beyond those snippets, most believers don't really understand the place and purpose of the minor prophets. So what I want to do is to pick just a few verses from each book that can illustrate the flow of the whole. If you're a Wabi Sabi supporter, I'll be sending you an outline of the series, and I'll continue to send the scripts and small group study questions for each episode. And as a special event for supporters, at the end of the series, we're going to do an online Zoom gathering to just kind of sum it all up together. So if you're not a supporter and you'd like to be a part of these things, just follow the link in the episode notes and it'll show you how you can become a gospel wabi-sabi supporter. So now let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10, originally written in Hebrew as a poem. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Invest in seven ventures, yes, eight, for you do not know what risks might lie ahead. When clouds are heavy, the rains come down. Whether a tree falls north or south, it stays where it falls. Farmers who wait for perfect weather never plant. If they watch every cloud, they'll never harvest. Just as you cannot understand the path of the wind or the mystery of a tiny baby growing in its mother's womb, so you cannot understand the activity of God who does all things. Plant your seed in the morning and keep busy all afternoon, for if you don't know it, for you don't know if profit will come from one activity or the other, or maybe both. Life, light is sweet. How pleasant to see a new day dawning. When people live to be very old, let them rejoice in every day of life, but let them also remember that there will be many dark days. Everything still to come is meaningless. Young people, it's wonderful to be young. Enjoy every minute of it. Do everything you want to do. Take it all in. But remember that you must give an account to God for everything you do. So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. But remember that youth, with a whole life before you, is meaningless. Where do you go to get advice on how to live your life? Is it a trusted friend, a family member, a financial consultant, a life coach, a yoga teacher, a talk show host? Who is it that actually speaks into your life? Who helps guide your decisions or helps you untangle all the knots? Well, I hope that one of the places you go, maybe the first place you go, is to God's Word in the Bible. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's Word written, not a magic book, but God wanting to communicate with us, intentionally revealing His own character and nature and actions through the words and the stories of real people in real history with the intent that it will help us to develop a personal relationship with God 
and help us live life the way God designed for us to live. The world isn't the way God created it to be. It is out of alignment with his nature and his purpose. We've gone off course. We're driving with a flat tire. The Bible calls that problem sin. So bad decisions are made, hurts happen, and consequences can often be painful. And God is calling us back to live a new way, a different kind of life, a redeemed way through our Savior Jesus Christ. The kind of life that's described this way in Psalm 1. He who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now that just sounds so good for me, fruitful, flourishing, thriving. The Bible has a lot of wisdom for us about that kind of life. There's a whole section of the Bible that's referred to as wisdom literature. Wisdom is God's is thinking God's thoughts, thoughts after him and living in light of who God is. It's about knowing who God is and living in alignment in accordance with his design for life because he has our best interests in mind. Jesus said something amazing in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. Other translations say an abundant life, overflowing, a full life. That means joyful, meaningful, hopeful, peaceful, purposeful, a full life. Now, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at one of these wisdom books, Ecclesiastes. And like I said in the last episode, uh, chapter 11, King Solomon is laying out some life principles some guidelines that we can follow if we want to live the kind of full life God desires for us. Solomon himself, he hasn't been very good always at following his own advice. And throughout Ecclesiastes, he articulates many of his own failures and struggles in dark places because he understands that his own personal shortcomings don't nullify the truth of God's principles. Principles. Principles are different than methods. When you read the Bible, one thing that you'll notice is that it has a lot of principles and very few methods. Principles are things that reflect the character of God, and therefore they're universal. They're true in all cultures at all times and in all places. Methods, however, are how we live out those principles, and methods are how we apply those universal principles to the specific world that we live in and the culture that we live in. How we apply God's word to the issues of our day, with methods, you're going to need to be flexible because not every culture, every person, not every life, not every circumstance is the same. But the principles are the same. And that's why God sends the Holy Spirit to instruct us and inform us and empower us about what the New Testament calls a spirit of wisdom to apply God's principles to our situation. So I feel like my job is to lay out God's principles for us uh, your job is to take them, pray and think over them, and then let God tell you how to implement them in your life. So here's one principle from Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 and 2. Live generously and invest yourself and your resources in what God is doing, because living that way will bring you a life of deeper satisfaction and blessing. That's the principle. Look closer at verses 1 and 2. A traditional translation of this passage goes this way. Cast your bread upon the surface of the waters, and you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Now, most folks have a hard time understanding exactly what the heck that means. You know, throwing your bread on the water, all you're going to get end up with is soggy bread or a bunch of ducks gathering at your feet. 
How is that a principle about anything? Well, this is one of those passages where you can't just take it at face value. And I know somebody is mentally saying, but Jeff, don't you take the Bible literally? And my answer is, yes, definitely. I take the Bible literally where the Bible is meant to be taken literally. But there are a lot of places where the intent of Scripture is not a literal translation or meaning. For example, Jesus said in Mark chapter 9, verse 45 to 47, If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter the eternal life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Now, Jesus isn't literally telling people to gouge out their eyes or chop off their feet. He's using hyperbole, exaggerated comparison, to drive home a point about temptation. Now, over the years, scholars have struggled to accurately translate this cast-your-bread idea. Some go more literally and some more figuratively. For example, the NIV says, ship your grain across the sea. The good news says, invest your money in foreign trade. But the contemporary English version says, be generous and someday you'll be rewarded. Those are very different angles on the same two verses. The confusion comes because this is a Hebrew, Hebrew expression with an economic background. Taken literally, it's a smart business principle. Take your bread to overseas markets and you'll gain the highest return on your investments. That's what it meant. In Solomon's day, there was a rich export and import business in the port cities of the Mediterranean. But who knew what calamities might come? Storms, pirates, crop failures. So the smart business person knew to diversify his or her asset, assets. But this business phrase came to mean much more than that. It came to mean a truth about life. Like we say, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, when you use that phrase, you're not actually encouraging people to go into the poultry business. Literally, it's about eggs, but that's not what it means. And that's what's going on here in Ecclesiastes uh, verse 1. Literally, it's about business, but figuratively, it's about learning to live generously. It's about a way of looking at the world, of being open to the world around you, about embracing a view of life that is open and free. And that's why the message version of the Bible translates the passage this way. Be generous. Invest in acts of charity because charity yields high returns. Now Solomon is describing a long-term view of life that would affect a person's business practices and their personal life because he describes our faithful response to God's generosity. The way we should live if we have an awareness that Jesus came to give us life to the full. It means enjoying this life with God as we see everything from the perspective of generous living. A generous and exuberant life like the life Jesus lived. The principle goes on in verse 2. Divide your portion to seven or even eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. That was a way of saying, give to as many as you can, and then some. Don't limit who you're going to help. Don't stop with just a few close needs around you. Be as generous as you possibly can. Don't say, I gave at the office. Giving is a way of responding to the love of God by caring for others, by going after real human needs. You can't always control the outcomes. Complex and unpredictable things do happen. But don't let that stop you from being generous and investing what you have into the lives of others. All you can control is how you are going to live in response to the grace and mercy that you have received from God. You see, this kind of life, an, an open, free, generous kind of life, that's what Solomon had been missing. He held on tight to everything he owned. 
And although he was wealthy, he missed out on the real blessing of his wealth, which was to invest in things that mattered to God, to use his wealth to care for the poor and those in need instead of hoarding it and clutching his wealth to his chest like some fairy tale miser. He could have experienced the love of God, the very heart of God, by opening his hand to those around him. And he even wrote about it in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So Solomon knew this godly principle in his head. He didn't know it in his heart. Could that be true of you? In two more episodes, when we wrap up this uh, series, I'll be looking at how often Jesus used the themes of Ecclesiastes in his teaching, and yet his flavor is so very different. There's always a sour taste in Ecclesiastes because he realizes how much of his life he has wasted. On the other hand, Jesus is full of joy and hope because he's actually living the life. He's modeling for us the kind of generous life that leads to blessing. So Jesus could say things like, freely you have received, freely give. That's Matthew 10.8. And it doesn't come across as legalism or that God has a grudge against people with money or that you should give to charity to soothe your, your guilty conscience. It comes across as joy. God has richly blessed us. We are to give because it is the natural outflow of a life that is already filled with the blessings of God, materially, spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Solomon knew this in his head, but not in his heart. And there are a lot of Christians just like Solomon who know it in their heads, but don't have it in their hearts, who don't experience the blessings of a generous life. Where are you on that? Think about it. Where are you on being a generous person? One of the things that God loves about his people is when they are a generous as a church. I don't just mean money devoted to local and global missions, but also the investment of time and people, of energy to others outside church walls, both locally and globally. I believe one of the reasons God blesses a congregation is because of its commitment to mission and the way a church will cast its bread upon the waters, the way a church will be generous and invest in ministries that are doing amazing and effective things all across the globe. One of the biggest blessings in my years as being a senior pastor was to be able to travel and witness firsthand the global and local impact of our mission giving. This hit me pretty hard when I got back from a trip to East Africa. It was an amazing trip because I got to see where our money went and to see how our mission dollars were actually being spent. The congregation I served had a long-term involvement with ministries in Africa, like 30, 40, 50 years, long before I came on the scene. But I got to see the benefit of it. Great ministries like African Enterprise that had done outstanding evangelistic work all across the continent. But at one point we made a strategic shift so that in addition to the evangelistic efforts of groups like African Enterprise, we began to partner with World Vision to make a significant difference in the lives of the poor in one particular region of the world. Instead of a shotgun approach where our mission dollars got scattered all over the globe, through World Vision we partnered with other churches in a group that's now called Why Malawi, to go deep and wide in one of the poorest parts of the world, the Chalenje region of Malawi, Africa. And I got to see firsthand the way our generosity made a significant difference to lift people out of desperate poverty to a life of physical health, economic stability, and spiritual growth, where people could begin to thrive and experience the full life Jesus wants for all. What I witnessed were very effective professionals committed to their own country and who follow a holistic, integrated strategy that really works. No more white colonialism. 
We don't need that. The ministries were led by nationals who knew what they were doing and who did it well to lift up the entire region. So partnering with local churches and villages, things were happening. Water projects, health, education, food security, microfinance loans, so people could start their own small businesses or villages can create co-ops. Everything from bakeries to beekeeping, seamstresses to hothouse vegetables. So many projects, I can't even begin to list them all. And all of that was funded by child sponsorships, money pooled together that lifts the whole community. But with an exit plan, so that after 15 years, World Vision's job is done and the community is, is able to sustain their own development by themselves. I came away convinced that there's nothing more effective in lifting people out of poverty than child sponsorships. Nothing leverages our resources better than child sponsorships. Nothing's more comprehensive in combating all the causes of poverty than child sponsorships. And one thing that almost brought me to tears was when I went to a spot where six years earlier I had stood with two folks from our congregation where we saw about 60 local children sitting in the dirt having school with one teacher trying to teach all of them with only a blackboard and some chalk. No books, no paper, no pencils, no building. If it rained, class dismissed. But because of us casting our bread upon the waters and joining with other churches, there were now eight school buildings that were serving 680 children with more buildings under construction. That's a good investment of mission dollars. That's the kind of thing that child sponsorships accomplish. But there's a lot more that can be done. I also got to meet my family's sponsored child. Her name was Brenda. And there's a photo I've kept that shows me with Brenda and her mother in their village of thatched roofed huts and dirt floors. I had just given them a goat as kind of a, an initial gift for meeting them. And they, in return, gave me a live chicken. Well, it's the first time I ever had to hold a chicken that wasn't from KFC, so you can imagine how that went. I didn't realize the significance of the photo that I have with Brenda until later. She's in her bright blue school uniform. But she's surrounded by all these beautiful kids who aren't wearing a school uniform. And I didn't realize until I got home that that meant that these are the kids who were not going to school. They're the ones who were waiting for a sponsor. They were the ones whose faces are on all those child packets that you see from time to time. Folks, the job globally certainly isn't done until all those kids are wearing a school uniform. So if you ever get the opportunity to sponsor a child through World Vision or Compassion or Samaritan's Purse, please consider doing it. One thing that almost made me physically ill was the day after I returned to the U.S., turned on the TV and I saw an ad for another child sponsorship group, and not, not one that I'll mention. But the commercial showed the saddest, most disheveled, emaciated, pathetic-looking children you've ever seen to make you, the viewer, feel guilty so that you would support one of their children. They even got a kid to cry on camera. They kind of call that missions porn because it's just kind of a disgusting way of trying to manipulate people. It's worse than watching those ads about animal abuse shelters. It almost really made me ill. It was so manipulative. That way of trying to gain support is exactly opposite of what I'm talking about. Guilt is not the same as having a generous heart. I don't want to see any more pictures of dirty children. I've seen a lot of that in person in Africa. Don't misunderstand. I've seen a lot of pathetic looking children around the world, children living in squalor. I have a lot of those pictures. The plight is real, but that's not the reason God wants us to give. We give because it reflects the heart of God, because we're making a good investment with competent, highly educated, effective, selfless professionals who are helping their own people with dignity. 
It should give us a sense of joy to know that we have the opportunity to partner with others and give them not out of guilt, but out of admiration, really. Folks, when you see effective Christ-loving people like that, you want to grab onto it. I'm not interested in seeing Christians pour their money down the drain in ineffective mission strategies. There are a lot of countries where we've spent millions and millions and millions of dollars with no results, and just the corruption continues to you know, take away any, any gains made by Christian ministries. I'm not interested in making people feel guilty so that they'll give. No, I want people to appreciate the privilege of being able to partner with and provide resources for others that will support their progress spiritually, economically, and socially. I came away with a sense of admiration for the faith and the hard work and the love for Christ and the love for children of the people that I met in Africa. You know, the end result of a life filled with generosity is joy. Joy, that's what comes back to us when we cast our bread upon the waters. At the beginning of that trip to Africa, I was with a small group of pastors who were visiting a school in the country of Rwanda that had been impacted by World Vision in a different area development project. And this one was almost at its 15th year, almost to the point where World Vision was going to pull out. And as we walked into the courtyard of the school, over 2,000 children greeted us singing and dancing. And each class put on a, a little mini performance to thank World Vision for its investment in them. Now, a number of the folks on the trip had sponsored children in that school and got to meet them for the very first time. One of those guys sponsored 21 children all on his own. Can you imagine his joy in seeing how his generosity was making a real difference? He cast his bread upon the waters and it returned to him in boatloads as he was mobbed with thankful children. People who aren't generous never have experiences like that. And you don't have to travel to Africa to know the joy of making a difference into the life of someone else. But if you haven't done it, I hope you will consider sponsoring a child. And if you've already sponsored a child, I hope you'll be able to be uh, an advocate for child sponsorships with others. The main point today, live generously. Keep your open attitude towards life. Rattle those doorknobs. Open those doors. Open those windows. Try to see what God wants you to do. Keep going. Keep trying. Don't hang a do not disturb sign on your life. Don't say I'm tired, I'm retired, I've paid my dues. No, activate your faith today. Wisdom must be accompanied with action or it's useless. Don't wait for some idyllic time in the future because it'll never come. Ask God how you can unlock your life to a life of generosity. Take Jesus' words to heart. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Have a great week.